0: Hey, it's your host, Kamea, and you're listening to Green Dreamer, a community-powered podcast. To be honest, we truly need more listener donations to be able to keep the show alive because, as you can see, we no longer do product advertisements, and I really want to keep it this way because I don't want to sell you things you don't need, and it's important, I think, that we maintain our independence from corporate influence and instead interdependence with our community. And if every listener chipped in just $2 a month, we would meet our fundraising goal in no time. So come join us to be a co-creator of Green Dreamer at greendreamer.com support or patreon.com slash greendreamer. It's
1: no longer agriculture. It's agribusiness or agripreneurship or agro-anything that's going to bring money. Agrotech, ag- whatever Just it is, just, it can't be culture. It needs to be replaced. Culture, there is a deliberate effort to replace culture, whatever culture means. Because wherever you are, if you are in your culture, if you are true to your culture, you are by default connected to everything else. And that is a threat.
0: Today we are speaking with Dima Mahmoud who facilitates order by manipulating chaos and stops at nothing for truth, justice, and love. She co-creates grassroots solutions by growing her knowledge, skills, and community to build alliances for inclusive collective growth. And as a self-proclaimed warrior of truth, Dima vowed to beat the drums of truth till the world knows unity.
1: I am Nubian and I had heard that word a few times as a child and growing up, but I had no idea what it meant. Not until 2006 when I was pursuing my master's degree. You know, I was born in Kuwait. After the Gulf War, had to go to Sudan for two years, moved to Egypt uh, where I grew up and went to school and then came to the U.S. and that entire journey that entire part of my life i was raised and I operated as an arab muslim girl that's all i knew that's how i knew it and there was very little context to anything else anything connecting me to anything or anyone else beyond my you know my immediate family and distant relatives this journey has been wild. And fast forward to 2006 where I first, the first mirror was raised to my face as a Nubian when I was attending a lecture held at the Institute of Arab and Islamic Studies at the University of Exeter and it was Professor Herman Bell. And he was giving a lecture called Paradise Lost and it was about Nubia and Nubian heritage. And I say this story so many times, but I have to say it because it's where everything started for me, I feel, in that this man came from Virginia and he's teaching through Oxford and Exeter. And he, he comes to me and starts speaking in a language. It sounds familiar, but I have no idea what he's saying. And I look really confused. So he looks at me and said, don't tell me you're not Nubian. I said, no, no, I am. And he said, yes, you are. Your Mahas even he could tell which tribe. And I was like, okay, he's like, how dare you not speak your language? And that was the first mirror that was raised to my face. I I don't know what language he's speaking of, and I this the, the look on his face was such such a combination of of both rage and heartbreak. And I went home. I went back to the dorms that night and I just kept researching. I was trying to get to the bottom of why this white man from Virginia was so angry. I couldn't speak a language that that is apparently mine. And he spent and dedicated his life revitalizing, protecting. And that's where it all started. This connects to everything that I am doing now. Everything goes back to language. Everything goes back to how we com- how we communicate with all that is around us, all that has been divinely created. Understanding that the earth, that nature, that all that surrounds us is communicating with us. And we're just walking around absent-mindedly, absolutely no idea of all the blessings, all the messages, all the lessons, all the whispers that are being sent to us because we don't understand that language.
0: Mm, That really sounds like a pivotal moment for you. And a lot of times people's earlier inspirations, there isn't necessarily one thing that led to everything else, but it sounds like that was definitely a very transformational time for you that then led you down this rabbit hole of really wanting to get to know your roots and who you are and the struggles that your people may be facing today. And one of the key questions you've been keeping close to heart is this question of why people were saying that Sudan was starving, even though Sudan is at the same time called the food basket of the world. And this contradiction sort of weaves together your roots as well as your work with a growing culture focused on food sovereignty. So I can only imagine how significant it's been for you to expose the tensions here. Where did this curiosity lead you to? And what realizations did you ultimately make from leaning into this inquiry?
1: You see, that's the thing. It didn't actually fully come through you know into full circle until a decade later until 2016. Mm. As I said at the time I was doing my master's my master's was in Sudanese Egyptian relations and then my PhD was Sudanese foreign policy and international legitimacy and I was doing it at the Institute of Arab and Islamic Studies so it wasn't even from an African lens that I was researching Sudan which at the time was the largest country in Africa but that's where I started recognizing the resources that are in Sudan still not fully grasping what you just rightly said, you know, it being called a global food basket. But 10 years later, in 2016, I'd finished my PhD, returned to the US, and at the time, the Bashir regime or the Sudanese government at the time was moving forward full force with plans to build three more dams in the Northern Territory of Sudan, which are the Nubian Territories, essentially. And those dams would have displaced you know, anywhere from 80 to 90,000 Nubians and submerge anywhere from 70 to 90 something villages, depending on how you define a village in terms of size and submerge more than 500 archeological sites that we know of. Mm. And that's when I was just like, okay, everything that I had first looked into Ten years ago, when Herman Bell first asked you know how dare you not speak your language just came rushing back and flooding back, and I was just like, "Now or never and this is where this this connection with land came, and this is where I started focusing i was there's there's a lot more here, and heritage isn't it's not just a building or a museum or a tomb or a pyramid it's it's this live heritage of of human beings that's being lost because again the language is endangered we can 't pass it through and Two years after I started the Nubia initiative with my sister, Dalia, the greatest thing, the greatest thing happened and it's the youth of Sudan taking to the streets for this revolution of consciousness. And it started because, well, for many reasons, obviously, but the biggest trigger was youth going to get bread and seeing how, how the price hiked and everything just basically connected, connected from there. The flame that was lit through that revolution, the awakening that was just being spread across the continent and beyond the continent into the diaspora, Sudanese or all people of African ancestry. It's just it's been amazing and it's been overwhelming. And it continues to be because the revolution continues, despite what the media might tell you, what despite what the media will have you believe if you pay close enough attention. It's, it's almost like... Um, If you're paying close enough attention, you recognize that the media and those running it are mainstream media, I will say, are desperately, desperately, desperately trying and working on actively silencing main street media, because what's happening on the streets of Sudan, what's been happening on the streets of Sudan, is nothing short of miraculous. And it's a reclamation of our divine connection to land. And there aren't enough blackouts or media, media, super social media blackouts or internet blackouts or telephone block. There isn't enough ways they can try to black us out to silence what's coming out because it's coming out, it's being felt on fronts. You have Kenyan news coming out outside their Supreme Court saying, what are you doing in our name for the Sudanese revolution? You have Ghanaians going out marching to the presidential palace saying what are you doing in our name in solidarity with the people of sudan with the south africans holding concerts Ethiopians Eritreans here in the u.s joining us in every protest we have in the dias it's just been amazing and it can't be silenced and it's that's that's what's stringing it all together how i came to agc was you know in 2019 there was this facade of an agreement between the military and the civilians saying oh okay This is how they're going to move forward because that's the only way to secure Sudanese don't starve. And at the time, I already knew the resources we have. I already knew that our land is rich enough and fertile enough to feed the world, not just to feed us. And so I packed my bag, but I moved moved to my village. Just like, okay, I need to learn how to grow food.
0: I was reading about how Sudan has been dubbed the global food basket or the next global food basket, in part because of the rich soils fed by the blue and white Nile, the abundant rainfall, a lot of the quote-unquote cultivable land, as well as the abundant fish reserves. Although it also makes me nervous that it's been globally recognized with this potential because That feels like an implicit or maybe even explicit invitation for outside investors looking for, quote unquote, productive land to grow commodities for export. So what do we already know about the free trade agreements that have dispossessed community food sovereignty in other parts of the continent, riding off of the colonial legacy of trade? And what parallel concerns do you have in regards to how the Sudanese food basket may be taken advantage of not to feed their own communities but for other vested interests.
1: And going back to language, when we say free trade, we, we really need to ask free free for whom? Who's who's agreeing on these agreements, who's designing and writing or co creating these agreements and for what purpose. But going into, you know, the flags it's raising for you, and very rightly so, because Sudan, African as it is, has been Arabized and for the most part a lot of Sudanese, if not most Sudanese, do consider themselves Arabs. We have been Arabized as a country, the name of the country itself and the, and the main language is Arabic. And so even in any reference to Sudan being a food basket, it is first and foremost referred to as the food basket of the Arab world. So that's already one way that limits our knowledge of the extent of the resources we have on our land. But then it's no surprise when you look at how the United Arab Emirates and Saudi Arabia and and Qatar and who else has, quote unquote, leased land in Sudan to produce food. And they're not employing Sudanese for that matter. They're, They're bringing their own people to grow this food, put it in containers, slap stamps on them saying made in UAE or KSA or Qatar or whatever, and shipping it over to their people while Sudanis continue to starve. And it's the same thing with like cattle and other resources making their way to Egypt. And so one of the most amazing things that's happening right now is the local resistance committees where people on the street are recognizing we can't rely on the military, we can't rely on any, any form of official entity or government, local, regional, or international to secure what's ours. And so these local resistance committees are barricading their neighborhoods to protect the military from going in with live ammunition or all kinds of torture. But more specifically, the local resistance committee in the northern state, which is on the border with Egypt, has barricaded that border and blocked any trucks or containers that are taking the cattle or the maize or flour or whatever it is that they're taking over to Egypt. And they're saying, enough, not one sesame, not one thing that is coming out of our land can or should go anywhere before the people of the land have access to it first. And that is transformational because we're, I think, for the very first time, Sudanese are really reckoning with what it means for us to have control, have that, that descent of food sovereignty, the sovereignty over what comes out of our land and what that means and what kind of power that allows us to wield on this international stage where everyone is looking at Sudan and looking at the resources coming out of it. And I'm not just talking about food. Sudan is also extremely rich in gold and that France has its eyes, eyes on it and you know has been loading. 25 million dollars worth of gold daily Mm -hmm. and just flying it out of sudan it's having that understanding starting to reckon with things like who gets access to these resources and how independent are we if Whatever government representing us is just literally leading us guy and selling us out, and then you recognize that this isn't just something that's happening in Sudan, and we start connecting dots and see that that's what's happening in d r c that's what's happening in Ghana that's what's happening in in everywhere else <laughs> you know what's ours is not the cocoa is not is not ghana's it's from Ghana, but what percentage is is Ghana keeping, and how independent are we? when we talk how how liberated are we how free are we if we're not free to keep what's ours if we are tied to agreements that are shackling us to sell things or literally give things away because it's not even selling it at, at a at a decent or reasonable price that allows us to to grow in a reciprocal way we're just being bled of our resources of of our hope, of our youth, because even if the youth do want to and and dare to challenge and look back and say, okay, well, let's, let's look at this land, government policies are effectively chasing them out because it's more convenient and it's more instant profit and gratification to just succumb to the international bribe to fit into whatever white hegemonic system that's already designed to allow for the constant and continuous extraction of the African continent. And all things indigenous, really, it's not, this isn't just limited to Africa. And that's one thing that really gives me hope is that more and more people are recognizing that as long as you're searching for truth, all struggles are connected.
0: This all really goes to illustrate that we cannot have conversations about sustainability or the health of the land without really contextualizing that with power. And as you mentioned, something that's been central to your work is this understanding of the role of culture and languages. And so especially in the face of economic globalization, governmental centralization and corporate monopolization, all threatening place-based relationships and knowledge, how might this recognition of the role of culture and languages be more important than ever in helping us to stay grounded and reminding us of what power is and where it should and really lies.
1: As ever, it goes back to language again. If we want to know how relevant or how important, or by, by some measure, how dangerous culture can be to the current status quo, we need only look at how quickly and how deliberately culture is being replaced. In words, it's no longer agriculture; it's agribusiness or agripreneurship, or agro anything that's going to bring money, agrotech, ag- whatever it is. Just it can't be culture. It needs to be replaced. Culture. There is a deliberate effort to replace culture, whatever culture means. Because wherever you are, if you are in your culture, if you are true to your culture, you are by default connected to everything else. And that is a threat to those in power, because those in power, their only claim to power is how they have traumatized human beings into isolation that we can't even imagine what coming together looks like that's the healing that is required that is what recognizing culture means because in in every culture there is some teaching of reconciliation of forgiveness, of healing, of correcting what's wrong. And it all starts with acknowledging that wrong has been done. This system is not ready to fully acknowledge the magnitude of wrong upon which it is built.
0: And I guess the incompatibility also comes from This recognition that culture by nature is necessarily diverse, is community-oriented and centered and also rooted in place. And Mm. the system attempting to centralize everything really leads to homogenization because it Mm -hmm. attempts to make these commodities efficient for extraction. And so these two, they're going in opposite trends where the revitalization of culture would take us down a path, I believe, towards healing, healing communities, healing place-based relationships, Mm. building diversity, which lends itself to resilience of social and ecological systems. And then this current dominant exploitative system is taking us down the other trend of, you know, unraveling all of these resilient and strong relationships and place-based networks.
1: Absolutely, absolutely again when we talk about healing, and it's it's not just healing healing us as human beings it's also healing everything that is around us it's healing everything that we have inflicted our trauma upon it's healing mother Earth. well it's not even healing mother earth because mother earth is just like she's she's doing our own her own <laughs> her own like, i am i am done with you all let me just ground you all while i do what i need to do and but it's it's also recognizing things like that it's calling in the hypocrisy. I say calling in because I'm, I'm thinking of you because they say calling out but calling in invokes love because you're bringing something in to to remind right but calling in this hypocrisy that we're seeing whether it's my fellow sudanese going out and chanting outside the white house saying oh you know help us get justice on our land what are what is the u.s who is the u.s to help Anyone to get justice when the US is this genocidal colonial entity that is on stolen land? How are we giving legitimacy to that? Like the healing, healing starts, not, again, not just as human beings, not for just us as human beings, but as us making peace with the very earth that we are on, the very soil that carries us, if the spirit of the soil we are on is violated. We have a responsibility to tend to that, to mend, to heal that in every way we know how. And that requires asking some very difficult questions and being prepared to answer them. That requires us to be prepared to be wrong. That requires us to be prepared to unlearn everything that we have learned. That requires us to to be... Comfortable in our discomfort so that we might cause these shifts to actually finally happen. And culture reminds us of that because culture is continuity. There is a way that culture continues to stay as resilient as it is in the face of everything that's trying to shut it down. And all these indigenous communities that have kept their wisdom, that have kept their knowledge, and are still passing it down despite everything that is trying to shackle and silence it, wherever, however it is.
0: Mm. And one of those difficult questions that you've invited me to sit with and your invitations to unlearn is this need to reconceptualize power. And Mm. we had kind of touched on this earlier, and I want to put this on the back burner and come back to this. But for our listeners who are not familiar with the political plight of Sudan, I wonder if you can share about the people-led revolution resulting in a civilian prime minister being put into political power And yet those bottom-up efforts still being hijacked in order to preserve the existing system and dynamic, which in part sparked the revolution in the first place.
1: Mm, This might be uncomfortable for some people listening, especially some Sudanese who might be listening to this, because personally, I don't... First of all, I start with recognizing, honoring our martyrs, our brave sheroes and heroes who have fallen in the name of this revolution, and in the quest for our justice, and our freedom, our peace and our dignity, as human beings and as Sudanese. This popular uprising, this wave of revolution of consciousness, which we have called the revolution of consciousness, since we took to the streets in December 2018, led to a massive sit-in outside the army headquarters for almost the first half of twenty nineteen. So actually from April till August, well till June because there was a massive massacre. Look up the Sudan massacre of June third to get a to get an idea of of the magnitude of these genocidal terrorists and what they will do to stay in power. But in short, it led to an agreement between the military and the civilian Civilian chosen or appointed representatives. I don't personally recognize that agreement, and I, though many Sudanese have, I personally do not. I don't recognize that agreement. I don't recognize that transitional government altogether because there is nothing just about shaking hands or signing any form of agreement with genocidal terrorists. And at the time of signing, and right now as we speak, those currently in charge of the military or running the military are two admittedly genocidal terrorists responsible for the genocide in Darfur. Those are who are right now president and vice president for all intents and purposes. So I don't care what kind of civilian, whoever, find what. Anything that legitimizes the power of two genocidal terrorists over our land is flawed and illegitimate, and a betrayal to our martyrs, and a betrayal to this revolution. Now, there are regional powers that are seeing to it specifically that the military stays in power. Our neighbor to the north, Egypt, is one of them. It cannot afford having a civilian government to itself, because that will shake things in Egypt. Now, will recognize, and Egyptians might then start asking question about how their own revolution was hijacked and how after chanting for 18 days straight, no more military rule, they continue to be ruled by the military and the military takes over. But there are also powers like the United Arab Emirates and Saudi Arabia, who have illegitimate and illegal wars in Yemen that need to be catered to. And their youth won't be sent to fight because their lives are too valuable. African lives on the other hand, in their eyes, are not as valuable. So they will pay these genocidal terrorists to send Sudanese youth to fight and die in this illegal, illegitimate war. There's so many intricate parts to what's happening in Sudan because again, as I as I continue to repeat, what's happening in Sudan right now is not just about Sudan. The questions and the answers that are currently unfolding on the streets of Sudan are connected to every single form of injustice happening in this world. And I'm not just saying this because I'm Sudanian. I'm not just saying this because people need to pay attention to what's happening in Sudan. I am saying this because it is the complete truth. It is about our past. It is about our heritage. It is about our history. It is about our present. And it is about our future. It is about reclaiming that future. It is about reclaiming sovereignty. It is about declaring our independence and saying no more military rule. It's about saying no more any force Structures of power, and if we feel like all oh, people of the land should rule the land, then that's exactly what we're going to pursue. And there's no power on this planet that can stop us.
0: Nothing ever happens in a vacuum, so it's important to be attuned to and learn how place-based struggles like that in Sudan and the surrounding regions are tethered to the global system that we are all ultimately linked to, and often complicit in as well so it's important to connect those dots and to bring in this call to reconceptualize power you've talked before about how a lot of people have been conditioned to believe that power lies in a particular place for example within the hands of political institutions and as such this leaves many to feel powerless outside of the limited ways that we can participate inside of those political systems And I think what you embody, practice, and have shown in your leadership and membership in movements is an inspiration to question and broaden our understanding of what it means to engage in politics, especially through how you interpret the historically low youth voter turnout in the recent years across several elections in Africa, like South Africa and Nigeria, while some people may superficially interpret low voter turnout as apathy and As such, even blame undesired political outcomes on those who refuse to partake in electoral politics in this way. How do you see this as something much larger and more significant in terms of how young people are rethinking power and politics altogether?
1: Well, for starts, we're, and I say we're here because I'm counting myself as youth, despite what my mother might think, (laughs) Uh, we're making a distinction between power and politics. Because for the longest time, we thought politics is power. For the longest mm-hmm. time, we've been conditioned to look at politics as as power. Only those in politics are shaping how we live our lives. Only those in politics are telling us what we can and cannot do. Alongside that, and specifically for, for use of African ancestry, because of the trauma imposed upon our people from those in politics, we've been taught that politics is dirty, and it's a dirty game. And... All politicians are, are conniving or evil or or whatever negative label we want to slap on it, and so there's this intrinsic need to stay away from politics. There's this instinctive, yeah, this is a big mess, and I'm just like, I'm just gonna be here, make my money, and be happy. And that's another dynamic that comes in that power also means money. If you're not making X amount of money, if you're not making a six figure whatever salary, then you won't have the power to actually make your choices to actually live your life the way you want to live it. But this is shifting right now. It's shifting because people are recognizing, specifically youth are recognizing that, now if we come together and take to the streets, we can actually stop things from happening. We no longer need to accept the things we cannot change. We can actually come together and imagine how to change them and actually change them. And that's what's happening because, and this is why, again, it's being called a revolution of consciousness. And this is why I'm saying it's beyond Sudan, because this, this awakening is being felt across the world, really. It's like this, the revolutionary winds of consciousness that are blowing into the air. And it's just this awakening is thankfully becoming inevitable that people are recognizing that we have the power, we are power, and that ultimately we are just spiritual beings having a human experience. And what that means here on this planet changes how we engage those who think they have the power. Because this has been a psychological warfare, first and foremost, that shift in our mindset in being able to discern between politics and power, being able to discern between our own power as spiritual beings having this human experience and how that juxtaposes and everything that we have been conditioned to believe is power. Does that make sense?
0: Yeah, there's a lot of deprogramming to do. And I think we we talked about this in a separate conversation before where it's not so much about a reclamation of power, but almost more so a a reconceptualizing of power or a reframing of what power means.
1: And a reframing of failure and a reframing of of fear and a reframing of our insecurities and a reframing of of all how we perceive, how others will perceive us because these are all things that inevitably shackle us. You know, we, we get so overwhelmed trying to grasp everything that's happening around us and things are happening a lot and really fast and things are picking up and it gets overwhelming and it gets exhausting. And somehow we, we want to we want to have some kind of grip over all of it, but really, it if we just if we start I mean, again, we've also been conditioned to to just like be selfless, and that you know if you focus on yourself, then you're selfish, and you need to focus on the collective, and it's all about the greater good. You are part of this collective, and it's a double edged sword when we when we make these thoughts and when we're actively engaging in uplifting a larger message. It's so easy for us to forget ourselves in all of this. But when we're, again, when we go back to seeking our truth, we are connecting to everything that is true. Everything else starts falling into place. And power is one of these things. It's a little bit challenging at first because when you start getting a glimpse of that power, then when you start realizing that you can put your mind to something and decide that nothing's going to stop you from getting that thing. Nothing's gonna stop you from finding the truth, regardless of whatever the media, mainstream media is telling you, and recognize that, no, you can actually make it happen. And when you come together with other people who are working on various aspects of whatever they're working on, it's still connecting and feeding into what you're doing, and it's uplifting your work, just like your work is uplifting someone else's. What's happening right now is we're recognizing that in stepping into our power, whatever that looks like, individually, it is pouring into the collective. And so there's this curiosity about, all right, who else is doing what? And and you wanna find out and you wanna support because you're getting inspired and there's life that's being just moving and really taking shape alongside you. And all of a sudden you're not just a creature, you're a co-creator and you can dream up solutions that you can breathe into existence. And that's kind of power we haven't been taught to consider or look at in any way.
0: That's so beautifully said. And the power of language has been really a recurring theme throughout our conversation today. And it makes me think about how we might reframe or reconceptualize power so that we don't recognize the same power as in power over or power powerful in a controlling way, but we might reframe that sort of power as being out of touch and disassociated. Mm -hmm. And we might learn to recognize success as it is defined in the dominant culture in a very individualistic way as maybe a failure to recognize our interdependence. So it's not so much reclaiming power, but maybe reclaiming the meaning of power. And it's not so much reclaiming success but reclaiming the meaning of success so a lot of the less visible and less tangible things that we need to shift which again i guess goes back to the revolution of the consciousness that you've been talking about as well
1: it's the essence really because even the meaning itself can can differ based on our experience but the essence of things and this is why some people have have issues with the truth right because you know they get really defensive the thing the truth has no emotion.
0: Mm.
1: you know the truth isn't happy or sad the truth is the truth but people get emotional about the truth people need to be truthful about the truth it's the essence of things that we're missing And when we say oh you know i want to be successful what embodies the essence of success for you and and what you've experienced and what you've learned so far and what you've gone through and where you want to be going what is the essence of success there what is the essence of love what is the essence of justice what is the essence of truth what is the essence of power
0: well i know i'm going to continue to meditate on this and ponder this further after long after our conversation but for now as we orient ourselves towards collective healing an increasing number of people are waking up to the need for reparations in order to heal historical traumas and injuries that have never been addressed, which then so far seems to have just manifested in furthering different cycles of harm and destruction. And you powerfully say, and I'm paraphrasing here, that everything outside of Africa was predominantly built on the backs of Africans. So if those outside wanting to help like Bill Gates do not align with this or recognize this history, then they're just wasting their time. And so you conclude, Africa doesn't need help. Africa needs the people who think Africa needs help to step aside, end quote. I think some people may misinterpret this as a nod to apathy or disengagement, when in fact disengagement means allowing the present really interventionist system exploiting undervalued labor and cheapened lands and resources, as well as the centralization of power to continue. I'm not sure if I read the pulse there correctly in terms of what you were referring to, so please correct me, and I would love for you to elaborate on how you envision the idea of reparations when it means those wanting to help stepping aside.
1: This can be this is a whole other conversation in so many <laughs> ways because it 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 has to start with asking, why are those who are saying are here to say?" okay, let's talk reparations, finally coming to say, let's talk reparations. It goes back into the the intention of things. And for those who are saying, oh, we're here to help. What makes you think we need help? What makes you think we don't have what it takes and that the only thing that has been stopping us is, you know, Crippling debts that, or crippling policies that say that a country cannot join the World Trade Organization without basically signing off its rights to say we're going to accept or agree or sign off that indigenous seeds will be criminalized moving forward, or that we're going to stop our indigenous communities and peasants to stop growing in their natural ancestral ways. you know what I mean? These these policies that are there. How can we reconcile these things and really? talk reparations so if, if we're talking reparations when I say step out of the way I mean let those who have been actually doing the work of reparation with what they already have tell you where the need is, show you where the need is if you are here to repair whatever it is you believe you or your ancestors have contributed to doing then come to learn don't come to tell us what will fix what you have done (laughs) we we know what can and would fix because we're not the first to do this we're building on what those who came before us have done and you have tried taking them out and here i presence the spirit of sankara and i i presence so we're speaking a day after the memory of Malcolm X's assassination. And so I present him and I present uh, every, every leader, every humanist, everyone who recognized that there can be no conversation about us without us. And that we are not a lacking people. We are more than capable to provide for ourselves. The issue is those who continue to pretend that they are here to help are here for other intentions. And this is why I say people need to be truthful about the truth. People need to be honest about what's actually happening here. And sure, this can be easily brushed off as, you know, this idealistic way of thinking. But really, sooner or later, the truth will out. Sooner or later you'll recognise that you can't keep lying about these things because Mother Earth, nature, everything that is divinely created is going to start shaking and moving things in a way where the truth can no longer be hidden. And this is where platforms like yours and the conversations that are that are had on and offline are connecting these these this much, much larger revolutionary web. Of consciousness, really. Reparations specifically to people of African ancestry means recognizing that when you talk about African people, it is not just people on the African continent. When you say African led, it does not mean, it it does not suffice for it to be led by African people. It must be leading to holistic African advancement and that includes those on the continent and those in the diaspora it must include there must no longer be any form of solution or reparation that is not rooted in restoring the connection between land and people and the land is Africa and the people are all her children on and off the continent
0: Well, as we recognize, there is a lot of tension in the fight over the narratives. And as you touched on earlier, corporate media and mainstream media are not always very in touch with people's narratives and what is actually happening on the ground, sometimes just due to the institutional bias, and sometimes, of course, very intentionally as well. But ultimately, and hopefully, the truth will prevail. So I really appreciate you sharing everything that you've shared here with us. And we are wrapping up our time together. But what else do you feel stirred to share in this moment that I didn't get to ask you about? And what are your final calls to action or deeper inquiry for our listener?
1: Ask more questions. Whatever these questions are, whether uh, they're about your personal life, your purpose, the people around you, your essence and sense of prosperity and growth or to the larger things that are happening around you, your connection to food, your connection to land, ask more questions, ask them publicly, ask them privately and keep asking more questions because really, really the questions we have connect us far more than the answers we seek. There's always a lot more to talk about, but shout out to a growing culture I've joined that family about a year ago now, today, Um, and there is a lot to learn and everything that is connected to food and what fuels you to keep moving forward. So I guess my call to action is to, on a personal level, on a collective level, to ask more questions, more personally, as a Sudanese, I ask you to keep eyes on Sudan. Check out com. Ring the alarm wherever and however you can. Know that if you are a U.S. citizen, your U.S. taxpayer money continue to be poured into weapons that bleed my sisters and brothers. Dry. Round
0: in circles, wanna be behind every smile, like a patch of freckles. I know your past wasn't fun, they did not deserve you. You should let me hold you, let me pull me arms around you, me arms around you. What can I say? I've been on the road, need someone to hold. What has been the most impactful book that you've read or publication you follow?
1: A growing culture. And I am not saying this because I get food on my table because I am part of that family, but it has truly been a massive journey of awakening a more massive journey of learning and unlearning so many things that has connected so many dots for me particularly an article called divide and conquer it's on our medium it's also on our instagram account so check out at a growing culture there's yeah a lot of information going on there Yeah, there's a lot of information and a lot more coming. I'm really excited about the things we're bringing together and weaving together for 2022. I'm very excited about this article. Uh, We're working on connecting Pan-Africanism and food sovereignty. So keep an eye out on that. I'm still learning. I still haven't gone through all the posts uh, that are out there. And there's always something that is mind-blowing in each of the posts.
0: Yeah. And I can definitely echo these sentiments as well. I'm constantly learning from your team and just so grateful for your existence and all that you do. What is a personal motto, mantra, or practice you engage with to stay grounded?
1: Ask more questions. (laughs) I really take that to heart. If something isn't making sense or if something isn't sitting well or resonating well, I'm The first thing I do is I ask more questions. I ask why I'm feeling that way. I ask why this could be happening. I ask where the lesson is. I ask where's the silver lining. And I allow myself to trust fully that all that is coming is out of love, radical love.
0: And what is your biggest source of inspiration at the moment?
1: Every single soul rising for justice every single movement, every single elder, youth, woman, man, uh, all of it, everything that is coming to the surface to remind us all that there's a new world coming and we can actively take part in imagining her come through or we can keep resisting and it'll just be that much harder. Um, it's been such an inspiration, as painful as it is to watch the youth of Sudan on the streets. It's been such an inspiration seeing them continue to come out, facing live ammunition with drums and songs and laughter and joy. And to know that it's not just in Sudan. Through my work was with ADC and seeing it in the Filipino peasant uh, movement, in the Kenyan Peasant League, in the South African indigenous coastal communities, it's everywhere. So everyone who's standing for justice, everyone who's recognizing and looking to restore that connection with mother earth and mother nature are my inspiration.
0: Well, Green Dreamer, we are coming to a close, but to learn more and stay updated on Dima's work with A Growing Culture, you can head to agrowingculture.org, and you can also follow Dima on Instagram or Twitter at The Um, and I will be sure to link to that in the show notes as well. Dima, I am endlessly inspired by your presence and all the ways that you show up and embody what you wish for the world. So, thank you so much for sharing this time with me and offering us your stories and learnings. For now, what final words of wisdom do you have for us as Green Dreamers?
1: Thank you so much, Kamea. You have prompted me to reflect so much more in this journey, and I invite everyone who's listening to reflect on their own turning points, reflect on their perception of truth and how that's changed, and to think and pause in moving forward, this kind of world that you are working towards, whoever you are. Are you ready to be wrong, to prove yourself wrong? To achieve that work and if you're not ask yourself why and if you are to what extent and just keep asking questions and see where they connect you to thank you
0: this episode of green dreamer was brought to you by listeners like you and to be honest, we cannot keep the show going without more direct support from our listeners. So if you value independent media and counterculture conversations like this, you can help to sustain and co-create the future of this show with a donation of any amount at GreenDreamer.com support. Without a media network behind us, we do rely entirely on human-to-human word-of-mouth sharing so that our extensive library of episodes can inspire and reach more people. So if you get the chance to share your favorite episodes with loved ones or to write us a five-star review in the podcast app, this all helps us out so much as well. Green Dreamer is a proud partner of Paya Foundation, which shares our vision and understanding that ecological, cultural, and spiritual renewal are interdependent. The song featured in this episode is Deja Vu by Mitch. Our audio producer is Scott Donnell. Our production manager is Tammy Gunn, Our transcript editor is Janice Cantieri. And I'm your host, Kamea Shane. Take care and I will catch you soon in the next episode.